Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. I like Heath's drawing today. I think as he mentioned uh, to me earlier on last Sunday, there's a sort of medieval type of um, thing going on here. I don't know what it is. I wanted to make it look like I was sounding smart, but... Just as you look at the picture of the two sons and their reaction to one another, if you could keep that in your mind. Again, I'm trying to avoid using uh, some of the slides because I really want to make one point today and make it as clear as possible. So if you're following along, you're taking notes, and you're wondering to yourself, uh, how come we don't have point one, point two, point three? That's okay because that's not where I want to go today. Luke chapter 15, if we could begin to read it. I'll read up to verse 10, but we will eventually get through 11 and following. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins And loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, there's three things in each one of these parables that we need to catch. And the the first one is is pretty simple. There is something of great value that is missing. In the first parable, there is one sheep out of 99 that is missing, and yet that one sheep has great value to the shepherd, so much so that he is willing to look for this lost sheep. Now, he's not looking for a lost sheep in the middle of the day. The idea here is that as the shepherd has gathered all of his sheep and he's putting them into the sheep pen and he's counting, he gets to 98, 99, and he recognizes that one of them is missing. Since it's dark, he really doesn't have much option. And back in the days when they didn't have uh, large torches or flashlights, torches if you're uh, English uh, and uh, flashlights if you're American, but they had basically laterns. And so when he is not laterns, laterns, but as he is looking for this lost sheep, he's basically looking in a field or the surrounding areas of the field where it's pretty dark and the lantern doesn't give him a lot of light. But yet because this sheep is valuable to him, the second thing that I want you to catch at least in this is that it warranted a search. In other words, he didn't say, well, you know what? I have 99 sheep. What's one? What's the big deal? I mean, uh, if some of these sheep mate, then we'll have more than 100. So we'll just leave that one alone and uh, serves it right for getting lost anyway. There you go. No, because the sheep is valuable to him, he looks for it, even though it's very difficult for him at the time of night that he's looking for it to actually look for it. And yet when he does find that sheep, what does he do? He rejoices. 
He rejoices in the fact that I have found this sheep, this lost sheep that I did not have, but now have been brought back into the sheepfold because for him, this thing of great value has been found. It's similar in the second parable where a woman, most likely a widow, has lost some of her money. And again, in those days, if you're a widow, you're basically unemployable. You don't have uh, much opportunity for job and you might not even have family in which to turn to. And so when you lose an important coin that is helping you live, it's a problem. It's something of great value. Now, again, back in those days, uh, they didn't have the nice floors that we have today. So if I asked Eugene to give me one of the Benjamins that he has in his wallet and uh, I dropped it on the floor, it would be pretty, pretty easy for us to find. However, back in those days, they had dirt floors, and if you lost this coin, it would have to require you to sweep or get on your knees and look for it and find it. Why? Because to this woman, this coin has great value, and it requires that she looks for it because she really needs it. In the end, when she finds it, what does she do? She rejoices. Now, why is Jesus telling this parable? Look at the first two verses. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How many of you have ever eaten at Benihana? Just a show of hands, don't be embarrassed. It's a little expensive, but you, somebody gave you a gift certificate and you went, right? Isn't it uncomfortable when you go sit at a table for eight to 10 people and there's only two of you? And the other six to eight people, you have no idea who you are, and it's kind of awkward to talk with them, right? Why? Because they're strangers to you. Because usually when we go out to eat with people, we go out to people that are close to us or that we want to get closer to. If you go on a date, you don't ask some stranger and say, hey, I'm hungry. Uh, let's go out to eat. Let's go to wildfire. I'll treat. Now, some strangers may say yes, but most of us will be like, okay, what's your end game? I'm not going with you. That's a little weird. The fact that Jesus is actually eating with these people is what he's saying is, these are my friends. These people are, are important. And ultimately, as we look through these parables, because these parables are pointing back to these first few verses, what Jesus is trying to say is that these people, even though they really are tax collectors slash traitors to our people and sinners slash prostitutes, they are still valuable. They are valuable to God. They have worth. And so the reason that I am sitting down here and I am actually welcoming them to my table and eating with them is because they, to me, are valuable. And I'm rejoicing. Why? Because this lost sheep or this lost coin has now been found. Well, that really doesn't sit well with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because to them, their thinking is if Jesus really knew God, and really knew the way that God thought, then he wouldn't be eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. He'd actually be sitting down and eating with us. Which is why Jesus is telling them the parables, because they've missed the point. Now let's move on to the third parable. Because the third parable, ultimately when we get to the end to it, is going to explain to us what the parables truly are about. Because like the parable of the Good Samaritan, this parable is not about prodigal son, even though he's a main character. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, 
Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, I know this is a dumb question, and I know that you all have the answer to this, but when do you get your inheritance? When do you get your inheritance? When your parents die. Yes, correct. So really what the, this young prodigal son is doing, I know it's a little awkward there for a moment, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like my son, right? When my dad dies, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're feeling. Okay, anyway, moving on. But yeah, when your parents die, that's when you get your inheritance. And not until then. I mean, it's very rare. Uh, when my father uh, passed away, my mom is still alive. We got a little portion of that inheritance. And it was helpful. You see, what the son basically is saying here as he comes up to his dad, he says, Dad, you know, I wish you were dead. And uh, why don't we just look at it this way? Why don't we just play that you're dead? And uh, why don't you give me my inheritance now? Because, you know, it's a little restricting here at home and I, I want to live. I, I want to experience life. And I don't have any money, obviously, because I'm kind of young. But if you just play dead, give me my money, I'll be on my way which is exactly what the father does. <clears throat> he divides the property between the two sons. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Here's the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate again. Here you have this wealthy man with two sons, the younger one wishing that he was dead. For some odd reason, the father gives everything that is the son is supposed to get. The son goes off, and he's got to have a lot of money. And, and I can imagine the situation, if you know anyone who's rich or what we see in the movies, is usually when rich people are around, they're very generous, and they're giving money. Not everybody, like Michael Jordan, but uh, there's a lot of people who go out there, and they, they take their friends out, and they go to all these places, and, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it. I know that when I get extra money, you get, you, know, you get sort of generous, and you go, hey, I'll take you out to eat. That's really neat. Let's go. And uh, that's probably what's happening. And so he's got all these friends who are like, you, man, are the man. We love you. We care for you. Hey, let's go out to eat. He goes, yeah, yeah, I like the friends. They go out to eat everything. He's having a really good time. And then the money runs out. And so do the friends. The friends are gone. Because he wakes up one day, probably in bed, and he goes, I got no money. This is bad. May try to go downstairs and say, hey, can I get something to eat? And they go, nope, sorry, you've got no money. We can't take care of you. It's gotten so bad that when this severe famine goes throughout the land, what are his options? To go and feed pigs. And it's so bad that as he's watching what the pigs are eating, he's thinking to himself, man, that's good. I'd really like some of that because I'm really hungry. I don't know if you've ever fasted for more than like three days or seven days, but when you're done fasting, just the hunger, you'll eat just about anything that you would never eat before. Well, he's kind of in that situation. He would be willing to eat pig food in order to satisfy his physical needs. That's how far off he has fallen. And he's miserable because nobody is helping him and nobody is around and his only companions are a bunch of pigs. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, 
how many of my father's hired hands, hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. It's a pretty pretty simple story. The man in desperate straits realizes this is no good. And he thinks about his dad. And what he remembers about his dad is that his dad is a very generous and loving man. Realizing that he thinks to himself, you know what? I can go back, but I'm kind of embarrassed about who I am. And if I'm going to go back to my father, I'm not just going to go back and say, hi, dad. I'm here and I demand what I deserve to get, which is to be allowed back into the family. Give me everything. Welcome me home. I'm here. Now, that's not what he expects. What he really expects, in a sense, is that he should get the cold shoulder. And if he's going to get the cold shoulder, the only thing he's basically going to say is, you know what, Dad? I have failed. I blew it. I sinned against God and I've sinned against you, and I really don't deserve anything. But if you would please just hire me, I know that you treat your hired hands with a lot of respect, and you take care of them because that's the type of person that you are, and I know that you would let me at least do that. So he has some hope because he realizes who the father is. But let's go on, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. For he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This isn't really the reception that I think that he was expecting, but I want you to see something very special about the father. This is an Eastern culture. Now, do do you guys know anything about Eastern culture? We're like, just kidding. Nobody laughed. (laughs) I was like, adults don't run to kids, right? I mean, in a sense, when I first started working in a, in a Korean-American ministry, I just remember, you know, as an American guy, you know, we would lay around and our grandparents would come in and we'd sit on the couch. And uh, when we sat on the couch, you know, grandmother, grandfather would come in and we'd, hi, how are you? You know, sometimes parents would make us get up and hug them and kiss them and we'd go back and sit down. But, you know, I, I did that one day in the presence of a Korean grandmother and the person came up to me afterwards said, you cannot do that. You must rise and say hello. And when you sit, you sit up. There's, there's a sort of respect for those who are older than us. And the realization that when we are like that that, that, that older person deserves the respect, then they don't just come running to someone who's offended them. It's up to them to actually come to us. I remember years ago, uh, one of the girls in my youth group was telling me how her brother, older, you know, first generation type of Christian, uh, was downstairs in the kitchen while she was upstairs in her room. And uh, he yelled, he said, yeah, you know, which is like, hey, you know, yeah, get over here. And uh, she was like, man, I'm doing my homework. I'm not coming down there. So he yelled one more time. So she came down and uh, he goes, hey, uh, give me a drink of water. He's sitting in the kitchen. And uh, he all he had to do is just get up and get it. But she was all the way upstairs and she had to come down and she had to get the water. And I'm not saying anything bad about the culture. I'm just saying about the way he abused the culture was wrong. But the idea is, as someone who is older, they need to be treated with respect. So when the dad comes running which is absolutely amazing to think that this older guy is running with a heart filled with compassion, throwing his arms around his son and kissing him and basically saying, I am embracing you. You have come back. Now, look at what the son does. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but. And that but is a key word there because what it does is it's a way of telling us that the father interrupts the son before he finishes his confession. Because again, look back to verse 19 and see what the confession is. It's, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. But because of the compassion of the father, the young son is never able to get those words out because the father, his heart is wide open and he's rejoicing that that valuable son of his whom he looked for, maybe he didn't go to the other country, but probably every day looked over the hill, hoping that his son would come back. And when he saw his son came back, he rejoiced for something which was valuable which he was looking for in his heart had returned and now he's happy and he's going to throw a party. Look what happens. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, not any robe, but the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Someone who was valuable was lost. There was a search going on. And when that son returned, there was great rejoicing. Because the hot father's heart here was filled with what? Compassion, as it says in verse 20. A compassion, an overflowing love. Very similar to the compassion that we talked about when we were talking about the Good Samaritan. That, that love, that that, that love that just overwhelmingly flows out of the father when he sees that his son has come back. Now, I would say the parable is about the prodigal son if it ends right there. We could say, ah, see, it is about the prodigal son because he was lost, but now he's found. But it really isn't because the story actually carries on in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? The servant replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, it's an excellent reaction. Verse 28, the older brother rejoiced that his brother returned. Right. Isn't that what it says? He's like, wow, so cool. My, it's like if my son Timothy said, Dan has come back home because Dan's the next son. You know, Dan was lost. And it's great. I missed him. I, I love sharing a room with him. Um, you know, until I get married, I want to share a room with him. And now he's home. This is wonderful. This is great. This is fantastic. That's not the reaction at all. The reaction, the older brother became angry. Angry. And refused to go in. And I can imagine him outside the party just walking back and forth saying, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this. This jerk that wishes my dad was dead has come back. He's lost all his money. And he thinks that he should get everything restored just like he was before. And he's angry. Look what happens. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He didn't go out and talk to him, he went out and he pleaded with him. Why? Because someone valuable was lost. And that 
warranted or required a search. So the father, recognizing that he now has another lost son, has begun another search and has come outside and has pleaded with his good son. And he said this, (coughs) come back in. But the son answers, verse 29, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the best, the fattened calf, just for him. Now, I think his argument makes sense. I mean, think about it. This kid should pay the consequences of the things that he has done wrong. He made the choice. And in the midst of his choice, he went out, lived like he wanted to, had all the fun that he wanted to, and he should pay for it. Makes sense. Kind of. Unless you're the father. How does the father respond to this? I don't think with condemnation. I think he says, my son. My son. With a heart of love. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The point of this parable is not about the prodigal son, whether it's the older or the younger, because they're both prodigals. The older was a prodigal in his heart. The parable is about the heart of God. Go back to the first couple verses. What does it say? The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were self-righteous. They believed that because they were such good theological minds, They believed that because they tried to live the pure lifestyle, at least as an outward expression, that Jesus really should be with them. But Jesus is going to tell them these parables because he wants them not to see that these tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, are bad people. Because you know what? They are. They're tax collectors. They are traitors. They are prostitutes. They have done wrong. But what Jesus is trying to say, even though they have done wrong, you must see the heart of God in all of this. You see, the heart of God longs to be with them. Though they have made these choices, though they have made these mistakes, I welcome them and eat with them because I love them. And so we must celebrate. How could we not celebrate? Those who would not know God are now coming home and they're actually knowing God. That's a great thing. You guys, though they are unrighteous, you guys are self-righteous. Because you think that you have done so much for God. And God should done in turn do so much for you when he already has. That you miss the father heart of God. And what Jesus is trying to tell them is he opens an invitation to them as well. He says, my son. They were lost. Now they are found. We must celebrate. You can come into this party as well. 
you are invited to this party as well. Let us celebrate together as a family. And so the parable is not about the prodigal son, but about the father who has a compassionate heart for everyone, unrighteous and self-righteous. And it's a heart that says, I love you with a compassionate, overwhelming, unconditional love that recognizes that even though you are prodigal in lifestyle and or heart, I want you to come. Now, I would have to say that probably most of us here don't struggle with unrighteousness in the sense that we're really, really bad people. And I know some of you will probably have some good testimonies who will say when I was in high school or when I was in college or, or when I was this. But I think most of us growing up in the church struggle with a different thing called self-righteousness. And in the midst of that self-righteousness, we do not always grasp the father heart of God. That's what these parables are about. A shepherd that looks for the sheep because the heart is passionately concerned about that sheep. The woman who is concerned about her living and probably the children that she has to make sure that they are taken care of. The father who deeply cares for a son, even though he's off in another country, knowing that the son is living wildly, hoping that he will come home and that he won't face severe consequences or difficult situations for the choices that he has made. Because the father's heart is for everyone. And I think that is the heart that Jesus wants to move in us as well as move through us. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about your politics. I don't know about your sports teams leanings. I don't know how all those things are are towards you and, and the passion that you have for them. I don't know how angry you get when you hear people talk about things that you are so passionate about and they disagree with you. All I know is that in my life, there are many things that squeeze the father, father heart of love out of me because of my self-righteousness. So-and-so does not think like I do about politics. Oh, makes me angry. So-and-so does not like the same team that I like and they have to rub it in. Oh, bothers me. So we talk about the World Series, but that's another story. All those things squeeze out God's love. And doesn't allow us to see people as who they are. Which is valuable to God. And whether they're inside the church or outside the church, wherever their prodigal heart lies, in righteous unrighteousness or self-righteousness, God is looking for them and quite possibly looking for you. Saying to you, as you sit here on this nice spring day, sacrificing the beautiful weather that could be outside, that you could be enjoying, saying to you, where is your heart? Which goes back to our Good Samaritan thing. Do you love people? Do you really love people? Not say, I love people, but do you really love people like God? Because I think at the end of this, 
Jesus' hope would be that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite, would say, we have no heart for these people. What we want to see them is judged and condemned. God wants to see them reconciled and redeemed. Wow, I want that heart. Do you have that heart that looks on people, whether they are like you or not like you, whether they like you or don't like you, to be able to say, God loves you and sees you as valuable and is looking for you. And I want to have that heart and I want to join with God in looking for you so that you might find the reconciliation and the redemption that I have experienced because there is nothing that is better than that. Is that your heart? That is not your heart. Read this parable again. And when you get to the end, realize that Jesus is speaking to you. And he's asking you. Stop. Turn from your prodigal heart. Come in and join the party. And rejoice when those whom you do not like find Jesus. And when you can get to that place and look at everyone that you see with the eyes and the heart of God, then you know that you're at where Jesus wants you to be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are most worthy because of the greatness of your love. In our unrighteousness, you love us. In our self-righteousness, you love us. And you call us to you because you love us. A love that is overwhelming, unconditional, and unending. Father, take that knowledge. Take your heart and place it in us. We know that we don't love like you. We know that what kind of love that is. We know how difficult it is even to do. But nothing is impossible for you. And so we ask, give us your heart. Break us over and over and over again for the rest of the days of our lives. That we might love like you. Share your healing. Share your power. Not because we have to but because it is the cry of our hearts. Maybe be like a Nehemiah who cries when the walls are broken down and the gates don't exist. Maybe be like a Paul who is willing to give his salvation, his knowledge of you up for eternity just as long as his brothers and sisters would know Christ. May that be our cry. May that be our prayer. 
May it be our lifestyle. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.